On today's episode, we are going to talk about designing hope in American medicine. I'm Bon Ku, the host of Design Lab. It's a podcast that explores the intersection of design and health. Our guest is Dr. Ricardo Nuila. He works as an internal medicine doctor and hospitalist in his hometown of Houston, where I actually lived for a little bit growing up. Ricardo's experiences as a doctor gives his writing its fuel. He focuses on health disparities, how policies affect real people, and the interface between art and medicine. He has written for the Texas Monthly, the New York Times Sunday Review, The Atlantic, New England Journal of Medicine, New Yorker. His writing has appeared in the Best American Short Stories Anthology, McSweeney's, New England Review, and other literary magazines. Ricardo directs the Humanities Expression and Arts Lab at Baylor College of Medicine. They focus on developing educational materials and experiences that weave the arts and humanities in medical education. Go to designlabpod.com. That's our website. You will find show notes from each week. Learn more about the guests. Get links to related contact. There's a link there for our newsletter. Each week, our producer, Rob Leglisi, will send you his reflection on the podcast, and you will get notes and links right into your email inbox whenever a new episode drops. Reach out to me on Twitter at B-O-N-K-U, on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Please send us your recommendation for guests who you think should be on the podcast. And while you're there, give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave us a review. Follow us. Tell someone about the podcast. Now my conversation with Dr. Ricardo Nuila. Dr. Ricardo Nuila, welcome to Design Lab. I'm thrilled to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. This is awesome to be here. You have two passions, doctoring and writing. How do you combine these passions? Because they're like full-time passions. The trick is that I see them as one passion now. You know, mm. it's like when I feel, I mean, it has gotten a long, it has taken a long time to get there. But today I can say that when I'm writing, I feel like I'm working on medicine. And mm. when I'm working in the hospital, taking care of patients, I feel like I'm helping my writing skills. And so to get there, it's taken years and a mentality change and you know, all these things. But yeah, that's I feel fortunate for that right now. Doing my research, you majored in English at Georgetown University, correct? And that's, you're torn between going to medical school, becoming a writer. Is that right? That's 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 exactly what happened. I was born into a family of doctors, like my dad's a doctor, my uncle, his dad, my grandfather. And so it was like one of those things where like the path was laid out for me. And it wasn't that they put pressure on me, uh -huh. but it was just like you just grow up going to hospitals with your dad. And you're just like, this is just why not? You know, he was OBGYN. He was an OBGYN okay. in Houston. And that's it just became a pursuit too. you mm. know, you know how medical school is yeah. It's just that you, you, you have to pursue it. But when I got to college i just realized that you know i took my first bio class and i was like i don't know if i can i like <laughs> to memorize that much you know oh that sounds like me <laughs> i know it i liked it but it wasn't it just didn't resonate with me as much as my english classes mm -hmm. and so i said you know what i'm just gonna screw it i'm just gonna be an english major and let the chips fall where they may but i, I think i can still get into medical school as an english major and i did all my pre-meds alongside it but 
when it got down to the point of, you know, I got into the medical school that I needed. I took the MCAT and scraped by and got into the school that I uh -huh. wanted to get into. And it was just like, at that point, it was just like, wait a minute. If I go to medical school, I'm going to sell out on being a writer. And I kind of really want to try this, right? Mm -hmm. So I went to my a professor who taught script writing, the script writing and dialogue class. One of the hardest classes that I've taken, even including organic chemistry and everything. Because it's like, you have to write like for the stage and you have to, it takes time and, and, and you have to think about all the directions. And so I went to him and I said, I'm thinking about leaving my medical school admission uh -huh. because I, I want to write. And I was like totally expecting him to say like, go forth, watch Woody Allen movies. You know, <laughs> like you're going to be great. You're going to do well. But he said, you'd be crazy to leave medicine. That's when I felt the chip on my shoulder. And I was just like, he just thinks I'm a bad writer. But he explained it. He said, you can go to graduate school in English and learn technique, but where are you going to get your stories from? Mm. You need stories. Mm. And, and I mean, that advice, that has stuck with me. I'm not going to say that it was like a clear launch from that moment on. Yeah. I had to turn it over in my head. But that has really been one of the fundamental advices for me. And, and it's shaped the way I look at medicine, too. Mm. Now, I can understand how being a physician can help you become a better writer because it gives you these stories. But how does writing make you a better physician? Well, I think that you have to demonstrate so much empathy when you're writing. You have to conceive of a reader on the other side, like receiving those words. You have to help them visualize what you're writing. Mm. You have to hit the right notes of tone. You have to be engaging and you have to have a point. So it's helped me think about how I deliver my messages with patients. And it's mm. also, you have to do it efficiently. Mm. You have to communicate in a way that's visual, effectively, and, you know, with a deadline, because mm. that's what writing is. You can't just keep on writing and writing and writing. If you're writing a scene, it has to have a like a dramatic structure and it has to end. Mm -hmm. If you're writing dialogue, there's rules for like, you know, how you write dialogue, 12 syllables and a line, things like that. And I those have helped me mm -hmm. with communication with patients. Mm -hmm. How do you code switch between writing fiction and nonfiction? Because don't most writers just kind of write their like nonfiction writers or fiction writers, but you do both. I do both. And I've last years I've been dedicated to this book that's nonfiction. Mm -hmm. I feel myself going back to fiction. And I guess it's kind of like the way you look at building a structure and like what is the material that you need for that story. So if the reason that the structure exists has to do with X, Y, Z, like, okay, I'm building a house, it's a beach house. And so what we need to do with this beach house is have it near the ocean, near, have views. You decide on the materials, you decide on things based on that. It's the same thing with fiction and nonfiction, which is like with this book, it became evident to me that it was so much about the question of like why these people go through what they do. And it had mm. to be nonfiction then because mm. the end product is like, wait, I need to ground this in real like mm. research and argumentation. This has to resonate with people as not just a imagined person's story, but is happening every day in America. Mm. And so when that kind of came together, 
that's when it was like nonfiction became clearly the route to use. But mm. there's other bigger questions, you know, there's other bigger pursuits or bigger structures that you decide, you know what, I maybe I need to tell this using the fiction lens because you're mm. you're trying to convey some other type of truth. Mm. Let's talk about your new book. It's called The People's Hospital, Hope and Peril in American Medicine. You follow the lives of five people who are uninsured in Houston. What was your inspiration for writing the book? How long did it take you to write it as well? Took me like anywhere from five and a half to six, seven years. I mean, it's hard to tell when one project kind of Mm -hmm. ended and this became the beginning because it's just been going on for a while. But the inspiration was a just the people that I saw in the hospital, you know, there's just the people that I connected with the patients. It was clear that these stories were just so dramatic and also so tragic, so comedic too. You know how it is. There's like, there's all of the world in medicine. And I was just like, people don't know these stories. And so it kind of started off as like, I want to do an artistic rendering of these people's stories, you know? And kind of at first I was like, you know what? I'm going to portray these stories and let it be, you know, it's people can make sense of it as they want. Wait, so it was going to be fiction originally? So I did start off, like, actually, I have a book of short stories that are fiction. Uh And then I just went into this project that is nonfiction. And I was like, well, you know what? These are going to be interwoven nonfiction stories like journalistically told yeah but written with the prose of something like fiction but still like there it wasn't like there wasn't me in this book there wasn't my father's story there wasn't like history there's so much lacking and that's when i started to as i mentioned i need to like commit to this nonfiction, Mm. and it needs to be blaringly clear that this structure is nonfiction with history what are all of the circumstances and the history that has led us to the point where this person is in this emergency room feeling this mm. you know and so in creating that structure for nonfiction, that's where i had to like say okay double down on it really yeah and talk about empathy you really had to get into the headspace the mental space of one of these patients yeah, I, that's one of the things that I really enjoy. And I think that comes from writing also. There is this connotation of empathy that it's so emotional. And a lot of it is, but so much of it is imaginative and intellectual. Like you're really mm. trying to imagine certain thoughts, thought processes that people have, you know, and connect. And, and the more you connect with people, the more you can formulate those thoughts and think of through that person's brain even in intellectual kind of spheres, you know? So yeah, that's one of the enjoyable things because you spend time with people and you start to say, okay, I think I understand how this person sees the world. And, and, and you realize that it's just like, I mean, everybody has their worldview, you know, and everybody's is very different and it's very enjoyable to see that. Let's talk about one of these patients, Roxana highlights chronic versus emergency care, this artificial divide that we right. have. In. Right. I have taken care of patients just like Roxanne. Wow. Like wow. All the time. And it drives me crazy yeah. of the injustice. So who is Roxana and what did she go through? 
Yeah, well, Roxana is an immigrant. She came to the United States, to Houston, from El Salvador, which is where my parents immigrated from. She came without papers and established herself in Houston. I mean, one of those stories where she came to Houston and got a job the next day. And she, for years, worked at Saks Fifth Avenue, had health insurance from there, ended up moving back and forth between different jobs, ended up being a caretaker for the you know, the elderly of the wealthy who didn't have caretakers, right? Mm -hmm. She, at one point in her life, she started to get stomach pains. She was in her 50s at this time. Stomach pains and vomit. She started to lose a lot of weight. Mm -hmm. One of her friends, the moment she sees her, after nine months of not seeing her, she lays eyes on her and she says, I have to take you to the hospital now. That's how vanquished she looks. Mm -hmm. And what they discover is just that she has this tumor that is arising from her inferior vena cava that wraps around her heart and her liver and is causing her heart failure. So she's an emergency condition. Yeah. It would literally kill her if she nothing was done. If nothing was done, she would die. She would die of like heart failure. She's starting to, you know, fluid in her lungs, just heart failure. And what what happened is that that's what's one of the extraordinary things about the American healthcare system is that she's in Houston, Texas, and literally the best cardiac tumor surgeon in the world is here and can wow. excise this tumor. And she happens to be able to be transferred to this hospital under emergency conditions to have it taken out. But she suffers this extraordinary complication. It's not common, but it does happen, especially when people are connected to the cardiopulmonary bypass machine that the cytokines are released once the tumors are incised and mm. the circulation clamps down on the extremities to divert the circulation to the vital organs. Mm. And she wakes up and realizes that her arms and legs are black. Mm. They are like, they are starting to die. She has oh, dry gangrene God. from like the complication. So, so her life is saved. But she wakes up and she knows she has no limbs. So she's going through a lot emotionally there, of mm. course. But our American healthcare system will give the opportunity to take these moonshots where we can excise these tumors, extraordinary things that surgeons can do to do that. Yeah. But she changes from an emergency care patient who doctors and hospitals can tap into emergency Medicaid for. Yeah. to chronic care patient. Yeah. And that's where she runs into major problems in terms of how to get these dead limbs off of her body. Hmm. And so she just suffers and can't get care for like routine care afterward. Is that right? Yes. The doctors at the hospital have to discharge her. They say that they can't tap into any money to fund her. They don't have any plan for follow-up because she doesn't have insurance there's just no way to connect her to primary care, you know, so yeah. they can give her an appointment for primary care, but it, they just know that she can't get there. She cannot like, you know, afford it. She even says, what am I supposed to do about these oh, dead geez. limbs and like let them fall off like limbs from a tree would file off and they don't say anything, you know, so she's discharged home. She goes home. She's under hospice care because I get it actually. That is the only mechanism that hospitals can have to figure out that they can give some sort of care to patients, you know? And so, but she's not actively dying. She has much more than like a year, you know, prognosis. Yeah. So what happens is, is that there's a public health care system in Houston. There's the Harris Health System, which is funded 
through property taxes, which is that can care for the for the uninsured. And even though in her neighborhood there is this enormous private hospital that deals with amputations and whatnot, she can only come to the public hospital. I don't know what people in her condition would do outside of Harris County. And I know it's state by state. It's so complex in America. Yeah. But that's her story that she arrives at our hospital and she can get care. And I know that there are patients who suffer things that are as, you know, weighty as what she suffers that live in Texas outside of this county. And I don't know what they do. Yeah. Because you work at Ben Taub, is which yeah. one of the safety net hospitals, and there's a funding mechanism for yes. you to provide chronic care for patients who are uninsured or Correct. who don't lack insurance or who are underinsured. They still have insurance, but it's a terrible type of insurance that doesn't cover much at all. Right. Which is becoming more and more common in America, right? It's like the underinsured is growing so much. and But yes, we have a funding mechanism where it's a public healthcare system that utilizes property taxes. So I pay into it. I own property in the county. I pay into it. And we utilize those property taxes for a healthcare system, which involves satellite clinics, specialty clinics throughout the city, hospitals where, you know, care is coordinated like that. And Mm -hmm. this book is as much to tell the story of people like Roxana as much as to show that we can do something about healthcare mm-hmm. in America, we're just so in the dark about it. I had yeah. to like, I had to like research. I was yeah. practicing in this. I didn't know so much. None of us knew who. I know. Who entered, there's, we don't take a class on it in medical school. We don't learn about the financing of of healthcare and how we got into this mess. And like, how do we get into this mess? Like, what's that? What's that story? Yeah, that was one of the the most interesting parts of the research because I feel like research is about like just finding the right books and you can just sniff around for the right books and not find them until you finally come across the right one. And I came across a Philadelphia native, Paul Starr, who wrote The Social Transformation of American Medicine, 1983 book. I have that book on my bookshelf somewhere around here. And I I met Paul Starr before. Yeah, he's great. I would bow down to him if (laughs) because he, (laughs) he wrote one of the most important books that really just showed how medicine in the United States started off as like kind of like a like a little philosophy and grew into this mega mega industry and he does it by with research with historical arcs everything but what i learned from that is basically like how much this was due to how doctors tried to consolidate power throughout the years you yeah. know and keep universal health care outside of the grasp of the American public so that they could, A, yes, they could have that relationship with patients and nothing could interfere, but that also was linked to the financial incentive of being able to yeah. bill in a fee-for-service manner. And, you know, you and I don't know this going into the profession. Very few people know it even in the profession, but that's the history. Yeah. That's the history. And we have to reckon with it. And we have yeah. to reckon that doctors played a big role in why American healthcare is in the state that it's in. And his his thesis is really interesting because he says that the doctors gained so much power that and then when corporatism came in, corporatism kind of like took it away from them. 
Yeah. And we feel that so often, you know, I feel like that that's like the narrative that we're yeah. feeling right now, you know? So I think his thesis has really kind of yeah come true, you know? In design, we say form follows function. Yeah. And I'm going to quote my buddy, Dr. Brendan Carr, who says in healthcare, form follows finances. Oh gosh, that's a really nice quote. That's That's unfortunately the world that we, I don't think that's the world that, 90% of doctors want to necessarily want to go into when they choose medicine as a, I mean, there might be a thought of like security and, you know, you can make a good living, but it's not to be like the capitalists that really is the history of what, how medicine has evolved in, in the United States, which is that doctors became capitalists and very strong capitalists and held power and that's one of the the reasons that we are in the the problems that we have right now. Yeah. Well, you and I both work in this broken system, but you're incredibly optimistic. How do we design for hope in American medicine? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that designing for hope means, you know, designing public systems, challenging our assumptions in America about what should be public and what should be private. That's mm -hmm. one of the major points that I have in my book because it became so evident just how these preconception in America is just that like the public doesn't, we're not going to do anything. Even when in Obamacare, when the idea of like the public option came up, you know, it was, the, uh -huh. it was just let go, you know, like of, of a public healthcare option. Mm -hmm. Right. I think that to design a healthcare system, we need to understand that the public has a big say in it. And what we're feeling right now is the extreme of a private system without mm -hmm. a counterbalance for a public. That's one of the reasons I gain optimism mm -hmm. in my in my daily because I work in a public system. I feel the benefits of it. And I'm not, you know, I try to think beyond what my experience is. I know that in England and the NHS where the weight is maybe a lot toward the public system, they're having their problems. Nothing's going to be perfect. Yeah. But what we feel, the experiences that we see our patients go through, that we we have to reckon with that, that this is a very extremely private system. And one of the reasons that we're going through these experiences, that our patients are forced to go through these experiences, we don't have the counterweight of the public. Yeah. And we already have this ethic system around healthcare. So we have this law called EMTALA, right? I quote it all the time. I don't even know what it stands for, but it, it's basically <laughs> every hospital has to provide emergency stabilizing care, regardless of a patient's ability to pay. We can't turn right. away a patient. We have to provide emergency care. And I'm under a federal mandate to do that. Like right. I cannot turn away. I can't go, Hey, Oh, you don't have insurance. We could turn you away. I have, if you're in a mortic vehicle accident, I have to stabilize. I have to take care of you. But why don't we have an Mtala for chronic care? <laughs> you yeah. know, if, if you have a chronic exactly. disease, if you show up to a clinic and like Roxana, for example, you could be turned away if you don't have the ability to pay. Well, Mtala is a great example to me of like just how our system has come together as patchwork and it's not thoughtfully put together in a way that is like trying to be as economical and as equitable as possible. You know, Mtala happened because we had patient dumping in the 1980s, in the late 70s and the 80s. You would open up the New England Journal or JAMA and you would read another case of like patient dumping where 
a hospital, a private hospital, nonprofit or for-profit hospital, and an uninsured person, they would just dump that person onto like a public hospital. And people died like that. And they Mm. did study. And so I think trying to take the bird's eye view, it's just like that doesn't situate well with like our concepts of liberties in this country, right? If you're dumping patients at critical moments, you're going against their liberties. You're taking away their liberty. And so the patchwork is, well, let's just say in emergency conditions then, you know? Mm -hmm. And again, there's all these special interests too, because, you know, the way to keep costs down is if all of us, like there's strength in numbers. If we had healthcare insurance for every single person, like together on one big, big plan, whether that's Medicare for all, whether there is like a service that provides it for us, costs would go down. But there are major forces that don't want those costs to go down, you know? Mm. And so this all becomes very complicated in how we've allowed it to unfurl like that. And I think that Mtala is just an example of that patchwork saying, okay, let's just say that your right is just to have emergency care, but it doesn't make any sense because that's the most expensive way to care for a person is under emergency conditions. You are an educator in addition to being a hospital, so you take care of patients or admitted to the hospital, but you are at Baylor College of the School of Medicine there, and you have a cool lab. It's called the Humanities Expressions and Arts Lab. What do you do? And tell us about what that does for the medical students that you educate. Yeah, it's a new lab. It comes on the heels of a report released by the AMC in the middle of the pandemic, December 2020. The AMC released a report. What's the AMC? Oh, I'm sorry. The Association (laughs) of American Medical Colleges. Yeah, cool. The governing body who dictates like what happens in medical school in the U.S. They had released reports on the fundamental role of basic sciences, which is like everybody knows is like, yeah, of course, basic sciences, but also social determinants of health. But their third report was about how the arts and humanities should be integrated into medical education. Mm -hmm. And so this resonated with a whole group of people throughout the United States who had been working on that. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's people who have been working in medical humanities, narrative medicine, things that if I try to put my like bird's eye view about it, it's really trying to swing the pendulum a little bit less sciencey for medicine, a little bit more art. We all know that in medicine, there's so many cases so many, that, that you can't just whittle down to numbers, that yeah. it's like the gray zone, right? Yeah. And I think that there's good reason why over the last hundred years, the pendulum has swung a little bit more towards science. There's so many great, incredible yeah. advances. But, you know, I think that some of the challenges that we're feeling in our profession right now are because that pendulum has swung a little bit more toward science, you know, mm-hmm. and burnout, for instance, is one of the reasons why the AAMC released this report is yeah. because people are start losing their sense of meaning in the profession. Mm. People are losing the ability to communicate with patients because when your mind is so programmed to think in numbers and in statistics, you can lose your way in how to convey that message at the bedside. You can start to think of the world as black and white and not gray, and it can be difficult to tolerate ambiguity. And that can create inner conflicts in you. Like, Mm. I don't get why this patient is not going to get this surgery, you know, and that you that can weigh on people. And so how does humanities help with that help? people tolerate ambiguity. 
Yeah. So when you're exposed to works of art, you have to engage with it and you have to understand that there's not just one right answer. Okay. Mm -hmm. And there's different ways of looking at different perspectives. So for instance, some of the activities that we utilize is we take internal medicine residents Wednesdays for art viewing at the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston. And they're, they see a portrait of two men together. And, you know, the questions come up of like, are they a romantic couple? What's mm -hmm. the evidence for that? Think about like the painter looking at this scope. How would you think that this painter would have come across these people? And that is creating a visualization within people to reconcile the artistic evidence, what we're seeing with like our own preconceptions of why we think, for instance, what we feel about this mm. couple or trying to reconcile like the lighting with the paint. That's what art gives us is mm. these tools for visualization, for thinking about people beyond their one dimension. Mm. We can start to think about like the depth of this person. You know, mm. why does this person wear jeans and, and like a tank top? I feel like in creative writing, that's what the narrative is doing. You're mm. you're writing in a cohesive manner, trying to put these possibly disparately linked kind of facts, like person's clothing, their accents together in a narrative that makes shapes that it makes sense so that it sounds like a real person, you know? Yeah. And I think that that is what allows us to get closer to the humanity of people, mm. you know, where we can actually sit with a person, a patient, and use those tools to see the, you know, the individual idiosyncrasies that define that person. Yeah. And then maybe kind of calibrate our language and our yeah. communication to that person. Yeah. I love that. In the interview, you said that medicine was such a beautiful field. And nowadays... I think a lot of physicians maybe don't see it that way, that there is what you said before, there's like this loss of meaning. Yeah. What are some things that you do personally to help you keep that meaning in medicine? I think that I keep my, you know, ears open for that dialogue. You know, I'm listening to the way people talk and trying to distinguish it from other accents other manners of talking. So it's like just having sensitivity towards humor, humor situations. That That is such a fulfilling part of my day, you know, yeah. when, when I recognize that somebody's funny for a certain reason or mm -hmm. when I recognize that, like, I'll ask them, you know, it's like, where are you from? And whenever they say, if they say Mexico, that's not enough. You have to tell me exactly where in Mexico. And I can ask questions to get to know that region a little bit better, mm -hmm. you know? Oh, are you all more into baseball or into soccer, you know, things like that. And that's like, those help me learn more about the world, Yeah, you know? And in learning more about the world, that's just a positive tally for my day, yeah. right? I'm not saying that that's just like, you know, I have bad days and those bad days can be colored by emotions and everything. But these other things that I'm kind of like attuned my mind toward are positive tallies. And sometimes you will hit, People who are super interesting that you'll connect with them. Yeah. You'll feel appreciation like, oh, you, you'll have like a 30 minute conversation and you learn about a lot of things. And then you're like, wow, this is just like so fulfilling. And I mean, yeah, 
medicine's about people. So of course it's going to be like bountiful. It's going to yeah. be so many different things. It's just that we have so many different mechanisms that impede our connection with other people. And yeah. it's like the billing or it's the, even it, it's our own pressure that we put on to whether or not we know everything about this diagnosis or it, I feel like if we're just kind of connecting with people, we can rely on our education and our care and things are going to usually be fine with that. Yeah. I love that. I, I try to do that with my patients. It's hard to do in the emergency department, but yeah. you, I can't do with every single patient, but if you just kind of ask a few more questions you you get to experience the depth of that human before you and their experiences and i remember them better too and yeah i remember that oh this person lived in philadelphia for 50 years and worked in a post office and have like five kids and you could get that yeah. in just a few minutes it takes a little extra time but to me yes it humanizes me and makes it more interesting and it keeps you going, I imagine, right? It does. It does. Yeah. And I can't do that with every single patient. But right. You can't. can't. No, no, no. But And I don't want to paint that picture that it's like, I think if people saw me on a daily basis, they would be surprised because I'm not like hand holding pages for like 20 minutes. Yeah. Because I, because honestly, I read people. I think I read people decently and they don't want you to hold yeah, their hand yeah, for 20 yeah. minutes. Totally. Totally. They want you to listen and be attentive and connect in that manner and be like, I'm on track with you. I'm going, you know, so yeah. I, I do it very like yeah. rapidly, but yeah. yeah, you could do that quickly. You could like, do there, it quickly. There's a way, there's a script that you can, you know, use that you could do it quickly. There is. And I think language makes so much and body language is part of it. But I think that communication, that's one of the major things that we do in the heal lab is like give mm. communications courses for faculty that are really not your corporate communications kind of like curriculum, which yep. is just like, you know, like memorize some acronyms and real. It's yeah. just more like, like, how do you connect with people? And how do you demonstrate that in your words, you know, and, and still going through evidence based stuff, but like that being the foundation. Yeah, I mean, we also have a medical humanities hour for internal medicine residents, we have a pathway for medical students so that they're exposed to different arts and, and everything. You know, I think that's a lot of it is to build the foundation so that they can apply meaning to their world, yeah, to their careers. Yeah. You know? I used to live in Houston, where you are at. I know there's so many great places to eat. If one of our listeners were to visit you, where would you take them out to eat? Well, it depends on the on so many things. Like that's just my internal medicine answer. For you, know, <laughs> you have to like you have to contextualize every you know. But I mean, ninety nine. Times out of 100, I would take them to Nancy's Hustle, which is like one of my favorite all-time restaurants. And it happens to be here in Houston. But it's this... Why is it so good? Because it's, it's just the food and the vibe just like go so well together. They're like two helices and a DNA. You know, it's just like it's... <laughs> what I understand is like the name of it, like a bar that appeared in Mad Max. So it has like uh... a neo kind of glossy mad max feel it's not like thunderdome but it feels kind of like wow there's like the food is in extraordinary and the people who work there like really literally come from all over the country to work yeah. as part of that it's like a youthful vibe of people who are just wanting to make the restaurant as good as it as it can be well i i love that next time i go to houston can we go out there and, and i'll bring oh. I'll bring a copy of the People's Hospital and I want you to sign it. 
it would be my delight to like to go out there and it'll be i promise you you will love the restaurant all right let's let's do it we'll put a link to your book in the show notes buy it it's amazing you don't have to be in medicine to appreciate it you will appreciate the humanity in the five people that you profile in the book so thanks thanks so much for coming on the show oh thank you so much this has been awesome thank you so much for having me this has been a great conversation you can follow ricardo nuila on twitter and instagram he is present on both of those channels his account is at r-i-c-o-n-u-i-l-a Design Lab is produced by Rob Puglisi, editing by Fernando K. Rose. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.